maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Intelligent Squared, where great minds meet. I'm producer Faye Adabita. We're dipping back into our bumper double bill discussion for this episode. Mary Beard and Rory Stewart in conversation, live on stage earlier this week in mid-November 2023. The two were discussing power and politics from the Caesars to Sunak. This is part two. If you haven't caught the first part, do jump back to our last episode and catch up. Mary Beard is the beloved classicist, author, and broadcaster who's professor of classics at Cambridge University. Her latest book is Emperor of Rome, Ruining the Ancient Roman World, which analyzes the excesses and wild tales that surround our understanding of the imperial leaders of the Roman Empire. She was talking to Roy Stewart, who may now be best known as one half of the hugely popular The Rest is Politics podcast. He served as an international diplomat before becoming a conservative MP for a decade, from 2009 to 2019. And his most recent book is Politics on the Edge, a memoir from within. If you're an Intelligent Square member, you can get our exclusive members only part three of this recording, in which Rory and Mary were taking questions from our live audience and online viewers too. Head over to intelligentsquared.com slash membership to get that right now, plus a ton of extra Intelligent Squared content too, or hit subscribe on Apple for just the audio. Now let's rejoin Mary and Rory for the second part of our live on-stage event discussing power and politics from the Caesars to Sunak. I mean, for me as a, as a working politician, I felt such uh, resonance because I felt that British politics is deeply, deeply corrupting, corrosive, that you are worse in mind, body and soul, that after a decade as a politician, you're not a normal person anymore. You've, and that the techniques for acquiring power 
are like a mask that you put on, and the mask turns out to be uh, coated with some poison that actually corrodes your face. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 and I feel like Tacitus that we let ourselves down so much. We we are so much worse versions of ourselves at the end of it. Do you think it's worth now? I mean, it's it's very easy to be nostalgic about the politicians of the past, partly because we don't have their WhatsApps or you know whatever, right? Um, so we it's it's easy to fall, I think, into a bit of a trap of saying. Um, you know, once upon a time, you know, we might not have agreed with them, but they were upstanding men of principle who resigned when they did something wrong. Um, and now look at the cesspit of politics. Do we really think that it was once a lot better? I mean, when I've been listening to the COVID inquiry, which you know, I felt a bit sort of polluted listening to it, but I've also been absolutely gripped, you know. Um, you know, and you see... Uh, the democratic heart of British government being a very nasty mess. And just a little bit of me has said, maybe that's what British democracy has always been like. And people have always been that corroded by it. They've always worn those masks. We've just been, we've just not kind of known it. Quite I, so I, I don't know. I think it's a very it's a very important question. I mean, clearly for a lot of Romans, they had an idea that there was a period in the past where Romans were better, and it's important for them at different periods to look back to some sort of golden age. I don't know, 150 BC or something, where Romans are behaving properly, or 300 BC, or some moment where where uh, Romans are dignified and grave and, yeah. you know, non-luxurious and all this kind of stuff. So, and and we don't, and it's difficult. Again, this is where the cynicism of the historian comes in. I think the temptation for the historian to is to say, well, this is all bullshit and propaganda and those people in the past were no better than <laughs> they people later. Um, my suspicion is a twofold. Firstly, I think it's, even if it's not entirely true, it is absolutely essential that you should have an idea of a better way of doing things located in the past, that that is incredibly important to try to maintain any form of standard. Mm. But I also think that in the case of British politics, there were things that were better. I think our institutions are genuinely collapsing, not just political institutions. I think our universities are in trouble. I think our media is in trouble. I think our civil service is in trouble. I think institutions in general are in trouble. And one of the problems is the replacement of a sense of intrinsic value in work with a form of careerism. Now, you can simplify this and think, well, there were always careerists. Yes, there were, but the question is, what's the balance? And my instinct is that if you go back and look at, I don't know, Gladstone, for example, Yes, of course, he was a careerist. Yes, of course, he cared about getting promoted. But my guess is, for the sake of argument, 30% of his mind is caught up with that and 70% of his mind is caught up with trying to do his job. But by the time you get to Liz Truss, things are very different, right? 
So in, in just to try to illustrate what it's like, in, in when I become the environment minister, I feel very, very excited. Right, here I am, I've suddenly become the environment minister, I'm going to plant 100 million trees, I'm going to make the air quality better in London, I'm going to clean up our beaches, I'm going to think about 25-year environment plan, I'm going to improve the national parks. And Liz Truss, who's then the Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, who my boss, calls me in, and she says, Rory, I want you to write a 10-point plan for the national parks. So I say, absolutely brilliant, I'll go off and do it, I'll get the chief executive of the national parks, I'll do some consultation, we'll come back to you in a few weeks. And she says, no, I want it in two days' time, I want it on Thursday night. And I said, well, the secretary said, it's impossible. And she says, oh, Rory, come on, let me do it for you. You know, number one, let's get more young people back into nature. Number two, I don't know, clear up the rubbish national parks. And sure enough, on Friday, in the Daily Telegraph, Liz Truss's seven-point plan for national park. Thereafter, she never visits a national park, as far as I know. She takes no interest in national parks. The job is done. At no point does she think, even for a moment, that there might be some fulfillment or satisfaction in trying to take the fact that she's responsible for national parks seriously, take an interest in what a national park is. And, and that's where I, I, I want to push back against the cynicism of the historian, because I think there probably were better emperors and worse emperors and better politicians and worse politicians and that's partly about moral standards I, I partly agree with you partly um, I, I'm you know I am cynical about the virtue of people in the past because I think often they, they appear virtuous because we don't actually know what was bad about them but I, I but I do agree with you to the extent that I think you can see nostalgia, not as a kind of romantic fog which stops us understanding what the past was like, but actually it's a kind of, you know, a prick, you know, to remind us that there might be, even if it isn't quite what it seems, that there's another way of doing things, that, that actually, you know, history... Um, is there, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to be a cynical historian and I think we need to be cynical about the past, but it's also prompting us to do better ourselves. And, that, you know, and it's useful because I don't think we can learn from it, you know. In a, you know I, I don't think it helps, for example, saying, you know, which emperor was Donald Trump most like, you know. Doesn't, that was the favourite question I got asked by journalists throughout the Trump presidency was which emperor. And I always used to say, actually, Elagabalus, not because I thought he was, but because I thought they'll never have heard of Elagabalus. And so, you know, they'd have to go and do some work, at least wiki, they'd have to go to wiki. Um, but I think you know, at another level, um, you know, the past is all we've got to help us make the future better. And we've got to, all got to find a way of doing that even sometimes at the cost of, of blurring it a bit. Well, let, let me give an example from my own life. I mean, David Gork, for example, who I worked for, I thought was actually a really good guy. And a historian, if I was to write and say, I thought this man was honourable, diligent, serious, kind, honest, uh, would doubtless conclude, as in the way that you are, Mary, what don't we know about him? What are we hiding? You know, what's the other stuff going on? Well, the truth is, I worked for the guy for a year and a half. I know him quite well. 
I was really struck by the fact that he was an extremely good boss. He was an extremely good leader. He was very serious about what he was doing. On the other hand, Boris Johnson, I thought, was a terrible human being, a terrible prime minister, and very, very bad at his job. And I really want to maintain that moral differences matter and that it's no good saying all the emperors of Rome were equally cynical, equally useless, equally horrible. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This, this, um, I, I think there's uh, one quick reading of my book could give the impression that I thought every emperor was the same. And in fact, that is what Marcus Aurelius says, looks back at his predecessors from the late second century CE back to the beginning and says, it's the same play, just a different cast. And there's a point in which that's true. My, my problem with the conventional way that we look at Roman emperors, which is, you know, hypocrite Tiberius, barking mad Caligula, um, this scholarly old Claudius who was a decent chap, extravagant Nero, and then hard-working Vespasian. Um, that those 
those ways of fixing the character, good and bad, of the individual emperors is hardly worth the paper it's written on. Some of them, I'm sure, were better than others. What happens 2,000 years later, as we look back, is that what we see, and it will happen to modern British prime ministers too, is that that reputation was established, determined and formed after they were dead. Right? And there's a basic rule for Roman emperors, and I suspect we can, we can parallel this in British politics. If you were assassinated, and I have to say quite a lot of them were, if you were assassinated, you get a terrible reputation. Now, that could be that you were assassinated because you were awful. That, that is absolutely possible. It's also the case that many good men have been assassinated, but that the investment of those who replace you in justifying your assassination and justifying their position on the throne is such that you become uh, the epitome of villainy. Now, I think all those stories, they tell us quite a lot about how Romans thought about good and bad, what they thought a good emperor was. I don't think they ever get as much closer to Tiberius. So, I mean, I, I guess just before we, we go into the public, I mean, does that mean that in a sense there is no point, for example, writing a biography of Alexander the Great that actually one has no idea at all and one can't say anything sensible about him. All one can talk about is what much later writers thought yeah. and that reveals more about the obsessions of later writers and really recovering anything I, interesting or substantial about him is impossible. I am now going to make myself extremely unpopular, I'm sure, with some people in the audience and some of my much-loved colleagues who have written biographies of Alexander the Great um, or various emperors or any number of Roman characters. Look, I use those. Um, I think it's, it's fun to try and write life stories sometimes. I think it tells you very little about them or history. I'll give you one example of why that doesn't work. I think you, um, there have been many uh, attempts to write a biography of Caligula. You know, Mr. Crazy by anybody's standards. And one of the key examples of his craziness is that he was reputed to have wanted to make his horse a consul, right? That's the kind of, that's the, you know, the, the clinch point of why he's absolutely barking. Um, and, he, you know, it's usually done very well in biographies and, you know, people say things like, well, maybe he was just very misunderstood or whatever. What they never tell you is that there's any number of other Roman emperors who also do very odd things with their resources, right? You know, Hadrian writes a poem to his, right? Uh, Commodus um, feeds his with human food. It's a bit like the story of the Queen's corgis eating out of silver dishes, isn't it? He feeds them with human food um, and he paints their toenails gold, right? And you can get loads of these. Now, what the biographical imperative does is it stops you seeing the pattern, you know? And you can say something about the pattern of these discussions. You know, 
emperors are always in danger of not keeping the boundary right between their favorite animals and a human being, right? That is one of, that is a part of the dystopian world of being an emperor, you know? You mistake your pet for a person. My, my sister makes that mistake, because she's not even a Roman emperor. <laughs> well, tell her to watch out, right? Um, you know, so I, I think, you know, as I say, there are lots of fun biographies, and I don't want to stop anybody writing anything about Rome, really. But for me, the what you what you can see and what opens up Rome, and I think opens up British politics, is not necessarily saying, you know, doing the I'm now going to write a biography of Mr. Gladstone or whatever, is actually trying to look at the pattern, and the pattern and the gossip and the anecdote does begin to open up a feeling of what, we, what we're afraid of in power, right? And, and what worries me about that, though, is, is, the, is, the, um, is that you lose a sense of being able to talk with any confidence at all about the moral character of an individual mm. politician. And I think it may be true that for ancient Rome, your sources don't allow that, you to do that. I think it is perfectly plausible with the incredible profusion of sources available on somebody like Churchill or Lyndon Johnson yeah. to talk seriously about their moral character and yeah. do much more than simply see patterns. Because if you're simply seeing patterns, there no longer is the virtue of the moral individual. They're, they're, they're types. And the, the patterns are about morality. I, I, I partly agree with you. I mean, that what you can say and write about the modern politician is of a different order from what you can say and write about Roman emperors. But uh, I didn't go into history to be a moral judge, right? You know, I can think, and no doubt we would agree, I think I do agree, having read your book, I, I, I think that my, by and large, my views, you've convinced me that your views and mine align over who actually you can, at some level, even if you disagree with them, trust. You actually think are decent human beings. Now, I'm not sure what the Romans ever thought a human being was, really, except when they mistake you for a horse. Um, um, but I can see why their version of power comes through the, the thick texture of what we told about them. Now, that would also be the... I mean, you know, where do we draw the line? You know, Henry, the Tudors, for us, are pretty much like the Romans, actually, in terms of that sort of basic, you can see the pattern of what is good and bad. It's different when we're looking at Boris Johnson, I think. Right. On that, I think we should open up to you guys. Um, so uh, any questions on anything ranging from Tacitus to Boris Johnson? <laughs> or anything in between. Um, there's, a, there's a roving mic and a lady waving her hand in the front row here. Uh, it's a very shy lady in the front row, but, she's, but your shyness needs the microphone to be expressed to the world. Yeah. <laughs> One of the differences I see is that Roman emperors were not elected by the populace. Um, we elect the people in power today. What does that say about us? 
<laughs> well, I think I will say that, uh, you know, you're absolutely spot on for Roman emperors. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons that so many are killed or reputed to have been killed is because there was no other way of getting rid of them. You know, that, that in the ancient world, murder was essentially what you used to solve the problem. Because they, they can't retire, really. They can't re- they, they don't retire. Diocletian is the first, the end of the third century. Um, so, I mean, you're right, I think, that so we have to look at ourselves in the modern world. I think the other thing, though, that you learn or that I learned from looking hard at the attitude of the elite and sometimes the dissidents to um, Roman emperors was that the opposition was very thin. And uh, um, why did Roman autocracy last for hundreds and ultimately thousands of years, if you go out east, is because most people who fancied they were dissidents, a bit like Tacitus, in practice, just went along with the system. And if democracy is in danger, which to some extent I think there is a case for saying it is, then my worry is that we're all complicit in not defending it. What do you think, Rory? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the problem um, of critiquing a system uh, is that everybody agrees that the system is noxious, but nobody agrees on what the solution is. So clearly we have a big structural problem in our politics. Uh, One of the problems is that we have parties with a death grip on our system, the Labour and Conservative parties, who are phenomenally corrupt, influenced in weird ways by money, have these horrible whipping systems that are deeply cynical, and we need to bring fresh blood into Parliament, which means that we need to change our electoral system. However, whenever one goes out to the public with a particular proposal in a referendum, as happened uh, in 2011-2012 with the alternative vote, any particular proposal to change it is rejected. Right? We all think the system's broken, but we can't agree on what we want to do to fix it. The same is true every time anyone tries to reform the House of Lords. Right? Massive majority in favour of reforming the House of Lords, total inability to get any kind of majority in Parliament for any version of what kind of reform you want to introduce. So, And I imagine part of the problem is there for the Romans too, that Tacitus senses, and they all sense, there's something really, really wrong with the system. I mean, Suetonius can't write like he does unless he senses there's something wrong with these people. But envisaging what it would be to create a better system... Um, and often, of course, what you end up with is a sort of nostalgic tribute act. Clearly, the solution to our problems today is not to reinvent Tony Blair, right? That is not the solution to our problems. But some of our political leaders seem to believe that may be the future. So I, I think we can all clap at the idea that we have to fight to defend our democracy. We can all clap at the idea that we want a better system. But the real problem of organization, the real problem of leadership is getting us united around a vision that can command a majority for what that alternative could be. Yeah. It's interesting that there, in, in Rome, after 41 CE, there 
is no sign of serious objection to the system. There's a lot of objections to individual emperors, and a lot of them get bumped off. Um, but they get bumped off saying, I'd rather have him than him. Um, it, it is with the, the assassination of Caligula, is the last little burst where somebody gets up in the Senate and says, I think we should go back to democracy, don't you guys? Uh, and it sounds great, uh, but the Emperor Claudius has already been acclaimed by the time they have this little, little speech, and that's it for the rest of time. Uh, gentlemen here in the, just, just back. And, and we'll bring in people up here too. Please put your hands up. We'll take the next question up from the gallery. Uh, thank you. Uh, what I wanted to know is what, in your opinion, qualifies a minister to be a minister? But probably more important, had you become prime minister, what qualities would you have required from the ministers? Okay. Um, so the, the, the problem in the British system is it's a very, very amateur system. I mean, I'm, I'm very struck when I look a little bit at the Romans, how amateur that system seems, that basically people are put in charge of armies yes, who, or certainly in a pr pretty senior position as officers who don't, who are not that old and don't, don't have that much military experience. In our system, it's completely shocking. Uh, Grant Shapps has been in five cabinet positions in just over a year. Um, uh, the lack of knowledge of ministers is beyond imagining. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's very, very difficult to explain, but I mean, the, the, but I mean, and it's partly, it's a very limited gene pool. All the ministers have to come from the members of parliament. And if they don't come from the members of parliament, there's been a decision today to bring in David Cameron as foreign secretary. Um, uh, but in that case, of course, he's a former politician. And even that, of course, is very controversial. People are saying, how is he going to be accountable to the House of Commons? He's not elected. What's he doing being foreign secretary? Um, the American system is completely different. In the American system, when our defense secretary was Gavin Williamson, who was a fireplace salesman, right? The U.S. Secretary of Defense, um, you know, was Mad Dog Mattis, who was a four-star Marine Corps general, right? It's quite a different, different, different type of system, different kind of authority. Um, what would I have required as prime minister? I don't know. I would like to think that I would have said that everybody should do a minimum of two years in their ministerial role, unless there is some astonishing scandal, that they need weeks of training before they take over the role, that there should be a proper handover from their predecessors to their successors. And actually, I was interested in the idea that you could bring into the cabinet some people with deep expertise from outside politics to blend into the general system. That, that links to one of the questions we've got um, from online, um, which in a way takes up from what you've been saying. Um, are there any other politicians, or perhaps we would say people, maybe, in addition to David Cameron, who should be brought back to the front bench? That's obviously a question for you, not for me. Oh, well, I, 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 I talked a little bit about David Gork, and I'm not quite sure why I wish to turn 
David Gorkin to Marcus Aurelius, one of the great, <laughs> great sort of epitome of the noble politician. Because if you were to meet David, he's rather, uh, you know, he's a lovely man, he's a very funny man, but he can be quite sort of quiet and... Well, just um, like Marcus Aurelius. Just like Marcus Aurelius. Um, but I, I, I just want to take this example because maybe it relates to the previous question of what makes a good minister. What I thought was so moving about David is that when one went to him with a political problem, he really tried to think about what the right thing to do was. Let, let me try to give three examples. Number one, when I went and said, the number one thing I want to do is try to make prisons safer. If it had been Pretty Patel or Liz Truss or Boris Johnson, they effectively would have said, where are the votes in making prisons safer? What, what does it appeal to? Which part of the Conservative Party, which part of the electorate does that appeal to? If it doesn't, and if I can't get a headline out of it, I'm not going to do it. David instead said, sure, fine, seems like a good thing to do. Tell me what your plan is. And then really followed up. You know, every week would sit down with me and the civil servants to make it clear to the civil servants that he, he was supporting me and that they should be getting on with it. Second example. Uh, Chris Grayling this extraordinary figure, had managed to privatise the probation service. These are the people who look after uh, men and women released from prison, predominantly men. And it turned out to be an absolute catastrophe in which if reoffending went up, the private sector companies were meant to pay the government, and if reoffending went down, the government was meant to pay the private sector companies, and all these amazing market incentives were meant to operate. And of course, what happened is reoffending shot up into the air, and the private companies all declared bankruptcy. Um, but I remember the civil servants saying to me, "There's no point taking this to David Gorg because his conservative colleague, who's still in the cabinet." signed off on this. Liz Truss, Michael Gove all endorsed it. This is privatization. This is what the Conservative Party is about. There's no point suggesting that we renationalize the prison service, uh, the probation service. Sure enough, David Gork listened to the argument, sat down and renationalized it and did it very, very modestly. Didn't get any headlines, didn't get any credit, didn't label it as that. But he knew that by not talking about it, he could get the change through. So he wasn't praised by The Guardian. He wasn't attacked by his colleagues. He got it done. I'm not going to give other examples. But anyway, David Gork should be brought back into the cabinet immediately. Right. Well, I think there, there's one more online before we come back to the audience, which... Well, shall I ask you this one? Well, yeah, well, I was going... Yes, that's okay. the one I was going to do, because yeah, I thought yeah, I wanted to... Yeah, I wanted to ask you one. So right. can Mary talk about the kind of power, if any, that women had in ancient Rome? Yes, well, I think this is, there is an ancient and modern aspect to this. And I think it's, uh, and I'll lay out the ancient, but then I want to ask you about the modern, that the Roman imperial court is supposed to be full of scheming women, right? That's Robert Graves' passive, okay? Uh, now, I think it's absolutely true that there was a few women in the imperial court at Rome, who had more power than any woman in Rome had had before, uh, by virtue of them being close to the man who made the decisions. Some slaves had that kind of power. It's the power of proximity. What the standard view, however, suggests is not just that casual power of proximity, but that there are women like, par excellence, you know, Sean Phillips as Livia is what I think most of. Um, or Agrippina and Nero's mum, uh, who 
have a set of political objectives which from behind the throne they manage to bring about usually by poisoning. Right? That's the you know how does Tiberius end up on the throne because Livia had systematically got rid of everybody else who's Can I just interrupt quickly because it's not relevant to your main point, but poisoning I, is one thing where I, I am a bit suspicious. Given poor hygiene, given I, strange food I, preparation, yes, how I, do you really know that someone slipped something in the food, particularly since they're not admitting they did it? I think that is, you know, absolutely spot on. I'm glad to see you being cynical, Rory, because it is really just what I want. Um, you know, we probably couldn't tell a case of peritonitis from a case of po- poisoning. And they sure couldn't. They were very suspicious when one of Nero's um, young relatives was um, killed at dinner, however, because they discovered that the funeral pyre had already been built. <laughs> that was a giveaway. It's, it's, it's the uh, story about Vladimir Putin uh, call, calling up um, uh, the, the, the family of Prigozhin to say, I'm, I'm so, so sorry that you're that your husband died in the plane crash, and his aide says, no, 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 that's tomorrow. <laughs> yes, that's exactly, you know, <laughs> he's been reading Tacitus. Um, but I think that, to me, this is where, um, you know, Beard the Feminist sniffs a whiff of misogyny. Yeah, I think that there is a sense that blaming the woman is one of the commonest tactics for explaining why things go wrong or men mess up, really. You know, wh- why did he make that stupid decision? It was because, right, of Mrs. or the lover or whatever. We saw it with Sherry Blair. We saw it with Nancy Reagan. And the COVID inquiry has shown us with Carrie Johnson, you know, in spades, why did Boris make such a mess of it? It was Carrie what did it. Now, we have, you know, whether it's wallpaper, which we're now told never existed anyway, um, you know, or rescuing animals, or um, having one view or another about lockdown, uh, you know, you can use the figure of the woman to let the man off the hook. And he's particularly good at doing that. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. If you're an Intelligence Squared member, there's a third members-only part of that chat, our live audience Q&A with Rory and Mary. If you've not signed up yet, it's super easy. Just head over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership and get the whole discussion and a lot more. Or hit subscribe on the Apple Podcast app. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet.